morning. So glad to see you at church today. And this is December 1st. And that means uh, that we're beginning our series around Christmas and the Advent season. The word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is translated in Greek as parousia, which means appearing or coming. And we celebrate Advent as the coming of Christ into the world. And uh, although we're not, we've never actually been confused with a liturgical church at Calvary, uh, we appreciate the liturgy around um, the celebration of Advent. And this year we're going to do that together with four themes of the advent of Christ in the world. First, his hope, how he fulfills the hope that was promised to Israel, the joy that he brings, his love, and his peace. And then it will be Christmas Eve. So that's how we're going to spend December together at Calvary. And I'm glad that you're here for the first morning that we celebrate the advent of Christ. And to help us is our student ministries pastor, Mark Luby, and Mark is going to open the word um, from the Old Testament prophets to help us understand the hope that was promised and fulfilled in Christ, and you're going to be blessed, because I've already heard him once. <laughs> but I'd like to pray for him and for us as we listen to the scriptures. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came into the world and the glories of God have been made known by your arrival. You have revealed grace and truth to us. And today we pray that we will all taste in deeper measure the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. I pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work in this room right now. And I pray for your anointing on Mark in his words and I pray that the scriptures will be open to us, that we'll be able to hear the very voice of God speaking to us about the hope that we have in Christ. And wherever there is unbelief in our hearts, I pray that you will overcome that by the work of your Holy Spirit to produce faith in this beautiful message of Christ who came. And I pray that this will be a, a time for us to listen carefully to you and to respond with joy and faith. May your blessing be on Mark as he speaks to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Bless you. This morning we're going to be looking at the hope of the Old Testament prophets who longed for a coming Messiah. And we're going to be looking at this Advent season through their lens of hope. For me, a lot of my hope around the Christmas or Advent season growing up centered around the gifts I was going to get. I looked forward to opening presents and we would gather at my grandparents' home and open gifts. And one year, Grandpa and Grandma Luby had given me a gift and I opened it in front of everyone and I looked inside and it was a stuffed pig, the type that you squeeze it and it goes oink. And I looked at it and I said, I don't like it. My hopes were dashed of what I longed for. And my dad marched me out of the room and he said, you know, Mark, it doesn't matter whether you like it or not, you need to say thank you. So I went back in and I said, thank you. But Grandpa Louie wasn't quite done yet. He said, well, do you like it? And I said, uh-uh. <laughs> My dad told me I needed to be grateful, but he didn't tell me I needed to be dishonest. 
And so I told him honestly, but it actually ended up being one of my favorite gifts that I ever received. My parents said that I would roll over in the night and they would hear from the other room the pig oinking. So I ended up loving the gift. But that was a lot of my hope. And by God's grace, my hope in the Advent season has changed over the years. And as we all come in here this morning, we have hopes. There's things we're probably hoping in, losing hope in, or have lost hope in. For some of you, maybe that's this holiday time and family. You hope for your family to come together. Maybe there's someone, you have a broken relationship with a friend or family, and you're hoping for reconciliation there. Maybe you're a high school student, and you're hoping to get in the college that you want to get into, to get set on the career path. Or maybe you're in your career, and it's not what you had hoped for. Life is just not what you had expected. Or maybe you're single and you're hoping for romance, or maybe you're single and you've given up on that. Maybe you're 20 to 25 years married and you've given up on romance. We know that that's a reality. There's all sorts of things that we can put our hope in, and whether it be our politics and getting a new political leader, or hope of change, or hope of the same, whatever you may be, wherever you may be at, it may be hope of financial security, Maybe hardships that you're going through physically and you just hope to get through this day with your difficulty. Maybe there's things of sin that you've struggled for in years and it's hard to not lose hope. Hoping is just part of being human. And when we lose hope, it's called being disillusioned. We stop hoping. It's called being hopeless and it's not a healthy spot to be in because we need to live by hope. And so as we enter in this morning, we want to ask the question, what is biblical hope? And how does the Advent season actually give us a tangible, real hope that can fuel us and help us live today as God's people? A great definition that I've heard for biblical hope is future faith or future-oriented faith. It's a faith that's looking forward. Hebrews 11.1 says this. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's being sure of what you hope for, the conviction of things not seen. And it's always future-oriented. So you don't hope for breakfast this morning. You either ate before you came or you didn't, but that ship sailed. It's gone. You might hope for lunch, though. And biblical hope is a future faith in the promises of God, that he will deliver on what he has said. It's been said that the fear of God is a type of fear that drowns out all other fears. If you fear God, what else could you fear? And I think we could say a similar thing about hope. The hope of God is a hope that permeates into every area of life. It's less of a circumstantial change, like you get the job, your kid gets out of diapers, whatever those circumstances in your life might be. It's less of a circumstantial change, and it's more like the rising of the sun on a darkened land. It gives light and meaning and warmth and purpose to everything. It permeates. It's a holistic hope. And in order to see the hope of the Old Testament prophets, we're gonna look at one passage in particular, which is Isaiah 9, one through seven. And as we look at this passage, we're gonna ask the question, what was Isaiah's hope? What was he longing for? Then we're gonna ask the question, how did Christ in his first coming fulfill the hope of Isaiah? And then as we stand now between the first and the second advent of Christ, what do we wait for at the second advent of Christ? What is our hope now? So what did Isaiah hope in? How did Christ fulfill in his first advent? And what do we wait for in the second advent? And as you open your Bibles to Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, I want to give you just a tiny bit of background on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has at times been called the fifth gospel. 
And it's been called that because it has so much content about the life and ministry of Jesus. Even though it was written 700 years before his incarnation, before he became flesh and dwelt among us. And there's two big themes that run throughout the book of Isaiah. The first theme is God's judgment on his people for their sin. And the second theme is the hope of salvation. So God's judgment on his people for their sin and rebellion, often coming through invading armies, and the hope of salvation and deliverance. So open your Bibles to Isaiah 9. I'm going to pray very briefly, and then we'll jump into this. Dear Lord, we know that it's the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. And so as we open your word, we rely on your Spirit to interpret to us the word of God. And we rely on your Spirit to reveal the hope of Christ. And so I pray that you would shine in our hearts the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as we read through Isaiah. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This passage begins with a promise, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the context of Isaiah 9, Isaiah is prophesying that there's going to be this army, the Assyrian army, who's going to come at God's people through Israel and sweep all the way through the nation down into Judah. And they're gonna bring them into exile. But here he is saying there will be no gloom for you who are in anguish. Though there will be judgment from God, there will come a time when there will be salvation for you as his people. There is hope in your exile. It says in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And when you read Isaiah, it's such a dense book of the Bible, that you read these passages and you get something like Zebulon and Naphtali, and you might think, what, why is Zebulon and Naphtali being mentioned? But here's something incredible. Zebulon and Naphtali are these northern tribes in Israel. And so when Assyria would have invaded, among the first places to be taken over would be Zebulon and Naphtali. So the promise is something like this. To you, Zebulon and Naphtali, first to be taken into exile, first to be taken over, to you, there will be glory. I will change your contempt and exile for glory. Verse two talks about the light shining on them. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You who are in the exile and darkness, you will have light shown upon you. In verse three, 
Though you are oppressed, I will multiply your nation. I will increase your joy. It will be like the joy at the harvest when you gather in all the food and all the fruits and you rejoice. I'm going to do something for you. That is the promise that God is making here. In verses four to five, God shows that he's gonna throw off the oppression of the enemy. Verse four says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken us on the day of Midian. And the image here is something like an oppressive ruler, an oppressive tyrant holding this rod over Israel. And God's saying, I'm gonna take that rod and I'm gonna break it in half and I'm gonna throw it on the ground and I'm gonna deliver you. And it's gonna be like the day of Midian. And Midian here is another incredible reference because Midian uh, is a reference to a time when Israel was in exile. This other nation, the Midianites, along with their allies, had overtaken them and there are 135,000 soldiers who are camped out and who are ruling over them. And God chose, this is recorded in the book of Judges, God chose a man, Gideon, and decided that he was going to deliver the Israelites through Gideon. And so God takes Gideon and his 32,000 men and says, you have too big of an army, Gideon. If your 32,000 men go against 135,000 men, they'll want the glory for this victory. They'll think they're the ones who did it. So let's narrow it down. God narrows it down to 10,000 men, still too many. He says, let's narrow it down again. And they get it down to 300 men. And with those 300 men, they do essentially nothing in the battle. They blow some trumpets and break some clay. And God turns the camp of the Midianites against themselves. And these people essentially watch their salvation be handed to them. And so here God is saying, I am going to deliver you. I'm going to free you from your oppression. And it's going to be like the day of Midian. It's going to be so clear that I am the one who did it. And your victory will be so complete that you'll take, in verse five, the boots of the warriors who went through the land, trampling down and oppressing you, and those boots with the garments rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God will have his peace. The garments of war are destroyed because the prince of peace will deliver them. In verses six to seven, God makes it clear who or how this is all going to happen. Verse six says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is no ordinary child, because this is what you will call him. This is the name of that child. Wonderful counselor. He will rule with the counsel and the divine wisdom of God. His name is Mighty God. It will be right to call the son God. Where does it say that Jesus is God in the Bible? I think Isaiah 9, 6 is a great place. His name is Mighty God, he's Everlasting Father. He will lead his people like a father and provide for them. And he's the Prince of Peace because he will bring about peace and salvation for his people and end to war. And the increase of his government, there will be no end. In verse seven, it says that he will sit on the throne of David and establish and uphold the kingdom. And the throne of David has a tremendous significance again throughout scripture because David in 2 Samuel 7 had been promised that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever and that his kingdom would have no end. So Isaiah here is painting this beautiful portrait of redemption. He's talking to the people who are in the darkness of exile and he's saying, there will be light shown upon you. Given to you in your oppression will be freedom. Though you sit under tyranny, I will deliver you and I will establish my kingdom. There will be no more gloom. There will be joy for you. And my son will sit on the throne 
and deliver you and dwell with you and lead you. And you can understand then, if you're a Jew 700 years later in exile under the Roman Empire, you might be wondering, is the son sitting on the throne of David going to come soon and deliver us? Our enemies are still over us. When will this all occur? And this passage has tremendous significance even for us today. It seems like we live in a culture that cries out for the end of the abuse of power, cries out for the end of oppression, and desires peace and the end of war. And what's promised in here is that God will actually bring that kingdom about. I think that our problem society, with our society is often that we make a vision of the kingdom that's often defined by our own values and what we perceive to be righteousness and justice, and then we try and live it out by our own strength. There's a great quote by a well-known atheist named Sam Harris, and this is kind of epitomizes the view. He says, to not believe in God is to know that it falls to us to make the world a better place. To not believe in God is to know that it falls to us to make the world a better place. If we get the right political leader, if we get the right educational system, if we get the right societal reform, we will bring about the kingdom. But God is promising here that he will deliver his people. But it will be by his power. And absolutely we have a part to play in that, but that he will bring his son to sit on the throne who will lead and define justice and righteousness according to the divine wisdom of God that his kingdom will be established and upheld by his power. So the question then is, how does Christ fulfill this hope in his first coming? As Matthew writes his gospel, he talks continually about how the hope of the Old Testament prophets is fulfilled in Christ. Talking about the virgin birth and conception of Jesus, this is what Matthew says in Matthew 1, to 23. He says, all this, took to place to f- all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew sees Christ coming into the world and he's saying, this is the fulfillment of the hope of the prophets. He's quoting Isaiah 7.14, which is a passage very similar to Isaiah 9.6, the for to us the child is born, to us a son is given. And then as Jesus continues his ministry, Matthew continues to see the hope of the prophets coming about. As Jesus begins his public ministry in Galilee, Matthew actually quotes from Isaiah 9, our passage this morning. And this is what he says about it. Matthew 4, 12 to 17. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And this is talking of Jesus. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And notice this. In the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them has light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's Jesus coming to Zebulon, Naphtali, first to be taken into exile, He is the light of the world coming to them, fulfilling the hope of the prophets. And what is he saying? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So you might see this as a Jew in this time, and you might be thinking, is now the time? Will he finally throw off the yoke of our oppressors? Will he finally free us from our exile? Will he overthrow Caesar 
and accomplish salvation. But the coming of the kingdom of God in Christ looked very different than many people expected it to look. When Jesus is transfigured and he appears in glory, he appears with two men, Moses and Elijah. Moses is the one who we've been learning about for a lot of time as we've been going through our Exodus series. He delivered the people of Israel from exile in Egypt and performed an exodus to bring them out. And then you have Elijah, the great prophet, and they're with Jesus talking, and we get an insight into that, Luke 9, 30 to 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Fascinating thing about this word departure, and this was mentioned in our Exodus series, but the word for departure is exodus. Jesus is speaking with Moses about his exodus and Elijah, talking about how he's about to free the people from their oppression. He's coming to them in exile and he's going to perform an exodus. And so will he overthrow the government? No. Rather, he'll be crucified by the government. He won't throw off the power of the government in this time, but he'll be crushed by the government. Rather than a throne, he'll be nailed to a cross. Rather than a crown, he'll be given a crown of thorns. And rather than all the people coming and saying, this is the king, they'll mock him, spit on him, beat him, and put a mocking sign over his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, while they kill him. So you have to ask the question, did Jesus fail? He comes as this Messiah in the line of David and is killed by the government. He did not fail. He accomplished exactly what he intended to accomplish. And it was something far greater than a political exile. Hebrews 4, 2, 14 to 15 tells us about that. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When Jesus comes, he does not deliver his people from the exile in Rome. He delivers them from much more ancient exile. It's not even the exile to Assyria. It's not the exile to Egypt. He goes all the way back to the beginning of scripture to the very first exile. The time when man and woman dwelt in the presence of God and yet sinned against him. Adam and Eve sinned against God and they're exiled from the very presence of God. They're exiled from the tree of life and the curse of their exile is that they will now experience death. So what does Christ do? He shares in flesh and blood. He becomes like one of us, and he enters into that exile. He goes into death so that killing death and being victorious over the grave, he can accomplish an exodus for all those who put their faith in him. He's going to the fundamental problem of humanity, our estrangement from God, and his purpose is to free us from that. That's the reason we went into exile all those other times, because we kept sinning and rebelling against God, because our hearts were not right with God. That's the cause of all sin, suffering, pain, and hardship in the world, and it's into that that Christ intends to accomplish an exodus. A way you could think about it is like a seed and a full-blown tree. The seed of the kingdom of God is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
and the full blessings of the kingdom of God come about as the seed of Christ's death and resurrection blossom into every blessing of Isaiah 9, the hope of the prophets, and the kingdom of God. But in order to bring that about, he's going to fix our most fundamental issue. He's going to set things right on the most basic level, which is our relationship with God, this world, and ourselves. He goes to the core. And so our confidence now, in the midst of our struggles, for many of us where we don't feel like we're at home in this world, many of us, we have lost dreams, we experience rejection, we experience the shame and struggles with our own issues still, our hope is that Christ has defeated sin and death on the cross. He has accomplished a salvation in his first advent. And this is not wishful thinking. Our culture has wishful thinking that says things like, love yourself, think good thoughts, positive vibes in all directions, things that don't really mean anything. But this is not a hope like that. This is a hope that is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. And it's a hope that's rooted in the word of God. We have an assurance of our hope because of what Christ has accomplished. And right now, we're not home. We have not yet experienced the fullness of the blessings of the kingdom of God. Christ has come and secured every blessing of the kingdom of God, but it's like if you were to think of salvation as a mountain, in the fullness of what Christ is going to accomplish as this mountain, there's two peaks. There's the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The first coming secures everything. Our hope is secured. And yet we wait for the fullness of the kingdom of God at Christ's second advent. And now we actually stand between those two peaks. And what life is now is not what it will one day be when Christ returns and we experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. When Peter writes uh, in 1 Peter, he calls the audience actually elect exiles. He's still calling them exiles. He's saying, you are not home yet. This is not yet the full picture. Even though Christ has come, you are not home yet. And so there's ways in which we're like Israel of old. We sit in exile, longing for the advent of Christ. Yet there's a fundamental difference, and that's that we have seen the salvation of God in Christ. We have seen Christ in his first coming, and we sit now between the two comings, waiting for the full blessings of the kingdom that have been secured by Christ. And not even Isaiah knew as much about the work of Christ as we know as we read the pages of the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12 says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. In Isaiah, in the life of Isaiah, the spirit of Christ was alive, and Christ was prophesying about the subsequent, or the sufferings and his subsequent glories. And Isaiah longed to see the coming of Christ. He didn't know the time or the person. And there was a sense in which the gospel was still shrouded in mystery. 
but he longed to see it. And he wasn't serving himself. Peter says he was serving you as he writes to his audience in the first century. And it could be, the same could be said of us who have seen the salvation of Christ. He was serving us because we have seen the salvation of God in Christ. We have seen him in his first coming. We now see much more of this mystery revealed as we have seen Christ's coming. And this is something that even the angels long to look into. Even the angels long to understand the beauty and the depths of the gospel that we have seen. Though so how, how do we live then in the light of this? First Peter 1.13, this is how we live then. Today, this is our hope. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully, fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully. There's a question that might be asked, which is, what if I'm not excited for the return of Christ? What if that just seems so out there, so abstract, so ethereal, that, that, that just doesn't wake me up in the morning? That doesn't get me excited? I'd ask two questions then. The first one is, do you understand what Christ did in his first coming? Do you realize the implications of his defeat of sin and death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead? You know, for some of us, the reason we may not be excited about Christ's second coming honestly may be that we've never actually come to know the hope of God. Maybe that we're not saved. Peter talks about being born again to a living hope, and it's healthy for us to examine. Have I actually come to know this hope of God? Because even now, Christ's hands are extended as he offers the salvation in this hope. If any of us would take that, he would give that freely today. And the second question is this, do we realize what's to come? Because even if you have come to know Christ, it's a battle to set your hope on Christ. That's why we're commanded to do it here. It's a battle, it's difficult to remember what we have. Isaac Watts in his classic song, Joy to the World, says this, this is what's to come. This is the fullness of the gospel. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. The curse of sin, our entrance and exile and death, affected our relationship with God, our relationship with others, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with the world. To that extent, Christ came to make his blessings flow. That's the hope of Advent. That's why it's more like the rising of the sun on a darkened land than a mere circumstantial change. This is a holistic hope that reaches to every area of life. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There's an old school pastor, Alexander McLaren, and he gives a vision of what life will be like at the coming of the Messiah. I think this is a beautiful vision of it. He's actually commenting on a passage in Zechariah 14, but this is what he says. Every cup and tumbler in a poor man's kitchen may be as sacred as the communion chalice that passes from lip to lip with the blood of Jesus Christ in it. Today we're gonna to take communion, and as we do that, there's a sense of reverence and awe that we have as we take communion. And what he's saying is that at the coming of the Messiah, at Christ's return, all of life will be filled with the sense of glory that we have in the most reverent experiences of God now in this life. That's what we hope for. For the knowledge of the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and all of life to be permeated with the presence and the goodness of God. That's our hope. That's the hope of Advent. 
for the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ and for the presence of Christ. The best part of, of Advent is the hope of Emmanuel, God with us. Christ came in his first coming to bring the presence of God and we await for the time in which we dwell with God himself where he will be our everlasting father providing for us, directing us, guiding us, leading us, living among us. He'll be a divine counselor who will sit down and talk with us and speak with us and teach us and tell us more of the mysteries and the beauty and the depths of God. We look for the Prince of Peace who will come and bring peace to this earth as we wait and we long for him. And to be driven then in our lives now by these temporary hopes in light of that gospel It's like C.S. Lewis said, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. There is so much more to the hope of the gospel. If that's true, how could our hopes be bound up in just circumstantial changes? A new career path, a new relationship, a new era, a new phase of life, the approval of others, money, sex, comfort, how could those things drive us in light of this gospel? What could possibly compare with the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? And as it is now, we stand between the two comings of Christ. Christ has come, he will come again in glory, and we will experience the fullness of the kingdom of God that he has secured by his first coming in every blessing of Isaiah 9. But until then, we live in a time that is still defined by exile. And our hope this Advent season is not merely to be comfortable in exile, but rather that we would embrace that we are in exile. We are not home. Maybe you don't feel home. Maybe there's a blessing of God in that because we are not yet home. And what will be at Christ's coming is what we long for. So my hope for us is that our suffering, our hardship, All of that now, the discomfort we feel, would be like a tool in the hand of God to tune our hearts and our minds towards him, to tune our hearts and our minds towards his second coming while we await the time where we dwell with God, that that would fuel us today. It would be like the rising of the sun onto our hearts as we wait for the time where we say, Emmanuel, God with us. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you um, for the hope of Christ. We thank you that you come to us in exile and that though we have put ourselves in exile, you deliver us. Though we do not deserve the blessings of Christ, you give them freely and you long to be with us. You care for us. We thank you that Advent is a time that reminds us that you desire to dwell among us because of the gracious God who you are. And I pray, Lord, we would know your kindness, we would know your grace, and we would know the hope that we have in Christ Pray for anyone who has not yet come to know Christ, that they would see the free gift of Christ extended. They would see your hands open, offering your son, and they would take of that. And Lord, I pray for us who have come to know Christ, that we would see just how beautiful and how good the hope of salvation is, and that you would set our minds and our hearts on that today. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.